I'm going to ask you to go to Joshua 6 this morning, if you would. Um, if you have it electronically, maybe a hard copy, that'll work for you. There's Bibles in the racks around you, um, but just see all the verses up on the screen. If you're new to New Help, I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome. I want to take you to Matthew, though, before we jump in and then pray with you. There's a description that comes out of Matthew that plays very heavily into what we're about to look at in Joshua chapter 6. And it's probably one that you've read many, many times. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 23. It's probably one that you've probably read many times before and maybe never associated it with what's going on in Joshua. I I would ask you to do this. Don't look for the verse on the screen. Just close your eyes and drink in what's being described here. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, recognizing that because of what Jesus did in those hours, we're able to fully worship you the way that we just did. So we use our voice in declaration and ready to proclaim what we recognize to be amazing. The words fall short, Father. And now we recognize that soon we're going to step into this thing that we call a celebration of communion. And it's so conflicting to us because we want to celebrate, yet at the same time we're torn over what happened in those hours on the cross. So, Father, we do celebrate. We celebrate the reality that we've been given forgiveness in Jesus because of what He did, but that He had to be tortured. We want to understand this better. So, God, as we go to Joshua 6 this morning, I ask that You would give us clarity, understanding of of the depth of what You have to do to make things acceptable in Your sight. So we come before you right now with hearts that are ready to be shaped. We had a really busy week, lots going on, Father. We're just asking that you would take this moment right now and align our thinking again by using your word to do that. So we pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said. There is a huge issue coming out of Joshua chapter 6, and it persistently haunts people. When they read the details about what's going on here, it can cause people to actually reject God. And many have. Individuals who read these descriptions, they they struggle with God over this issue. How can a good God allow things like that? 
which is usually followed up by a mental list of things that they've seen happen that are bad on the planet and say, I don't understand how a good God could be in control. So either he's good and he's not all powerful or he's God and he just doesn't care. I don't see that that's a good God. Well, in the Old Testament, especially in Joshua 6, a a similar question surfaces. How can a good God command such a brutal action? That very component comes out of Joshua 6, but I want you to know up front. A proper biblical response to that question is actually rooted in what we discussed last week in Joshua 5. The reality that God's agenda and our agenda do not consistently align. Often we have to be reminded of this and say amen if you agree that we have to be reminded that He's God and we're not, right? (laughs) Maybe you had to do that this week. Like, okay, things didn't go the way that I wanted them to this week, but God's on the throne and He's in control. So often what we find is our priorities clash. And last week what we saw in Joshua 5 is that Joshua actually had to have his theology fixed. Remember Joshua met Jesus? He met the pre-incarnate Christ and as a warrior with the sword drawn and he came right out with a question, walked right up to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And God said, no, right? Remember that awkward moment? Neither, Joshua. You need your theology fixed, Joshua. Today, we're going to be reminded also that our God is incredibly patient when it comes to such things. If you're new to church, it's one of the amazing characteristics of God, what the Bible calls long-suffering, that He puts up with a lot, meaning He does better with putting up with us than we do with putting up with each other, and certainly better than what we understand of God. He had to remind Moses of that very thing. Let me frame this for you. I'm going to show you a verse on the screen in just a moment. There was a time when Moses asked God if he could see him. He wanted to lay eyes on him face to face. And God said, no, no one can see me and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. He's on the side of Mount Sinai, and he said, when I pass by, I'll put my hand over your face so that you don't see me. But what you'll see is the afterburner of me, if you will. You'll see the afterglow, the amazing glory of God. And then he did that, and this is what he said to Moses while he's passing by. Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious There it is, slow to anger. Wouldn't you love to have that attribute in your life? How many of us would say, yeah, I wish I didn't have such a short fuse? And we recognize that it's in our life, but we fail to recognize that it's also in a lot of other people's lives too. Matter of fact, every human struggles with that. It's a God attribute. God is very slow to anger. We are quick to anger. And God says, I am patient, I am long-suffering. Watch in verse 7, I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's God's characteristic. He is really, really patient. And for many, many years, God allowed the sins of the Canaanites and the Amorites to stack up, if you will, because He's so patient. He was very slow to anger with them. But ultimately, 
They unashamedly crossed the line. They became very much like Sodom before them. And their egregious behavior caused God to say, I have to annihilate them. I have to take them out. And that moment arrives in Joshua chapter 6. Let's go right there in verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. So why Jericho? Well, because it's strategically located. It's a border town, but it's a very prosperous border town, and it controls the flow of everyone coming in and out of the region. Because it's right on the side of the Jordan River, this particular area was very lush. Lots of palm trees. It's known as the City of Palms. Lots of rose bushes, many fruit trees. Fragrance was felt miles away. They could, they could sense coming into the presence of this very lush valley. And it stood in stark contrast to the rest of the desert area. But it's also a fortified city. It guards the roots in and out of the territory, so that's why it's so critical. And that no one is being let out and no one is coming in indicates just how desperate the situation is. Because it's really common during a time of siege warfare to at least send out skirmish groups, those who would test the enemy that's coming at them to see just how strong are they, to figure out what caliber of fighting warriors are these that are coming at us. But they're not letting anybody out. They're not letting anybody in because obviously they're extremely frightened at the thought of invasion. And they fully expect that like the Egyptian army or the Babylonian army that they're about to experience siege warfare and that their city will be laid waste and there will be armies coming right at them because they're very much aware that camped only a few miles away there's a couple million people who just crossed the Jordan River on a dry riverbed. And they know about the exploits of these individuals and how they were set free from Egypt. And now comes this report that they're coming at them. So they shut the gates. And that's a problem if you live inside. Unless you have provisions of water and provisions of food stored away, it can get really ugly really fast. But it's also an obstacle for Israel. Taking this city is not going to be a cakewalk. It's not only fortified, it has the traditional barricade gates. They're purposely built into the structure of the wall system so that no one could get in. Siege warfare was created just for this type of situation because once those gates are sealed shut, they are designed to be impenetrable. They're not only built out of massive wooden beams, but they're coated with a bronze coating. So that's quite a structure, and that's why siege warfare was created. And then God says this in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Now, don't miss that. The outcome has already been determined. God is saying, I already know exactly what's going to happen. I've already given Jericho to you. It's part of my larger purposes. So bear down on the phrase that's used there in verse 2, I have given. It's a verb, and the tense of the verb is talking about as though it's already been accomplished. You just need to complete the task. So he gives them very precise instructions that they need to carefully circle the city rather than any classic military tactic they've ever heard of. And the conquest of this city is going to be a major challenge. And in typical challenges, you would see ladders put up against walls and catapults would be built. And, and there would be all kinds of spears available and there'd be big buckets of oil that they would dump against the wall. 
But after 40 years of wandering, Israel's in no position. They're not equipped for that. And besides that, the previous generation, their parents and grandparents, when they came against high walls, they were scared of them. And they reported back 40 years earlier, there's no way we can take those cities. They have high walls around them. This is an incredibly intimidating setting. But God says, here's what you're going to do, verse 3. So you shall march around the city. And remember last week you learned that there were 40,000 minimum that were equipped for war, that were battle ready. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city at once, for you shall do so for six days. Pay very close attention to verse 4. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And you might be thinking, what's going on with the number seven? Why is that repeated? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Go to verse 5. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Now, did you catch that in verse 3? Look at it. Verse 3, all the men of war circling the city once. So a minimum of 40,000 warriors who are battle-ready, who are standing outside Jericho. And those individuals can easily be seen from these elevated walls of the city of Jericho. Archaeologists tell us that the walls of Jericho were somewhere around 40 feet high. So they can easily see this army approaching them and circling the city, but what they can't see is the other army. They can't see the invisible host that Jesus told him about the week before when we looked at Joshua 5. They can't see the chariots of flaming fire. All they can see are these humans coming at them. But what we saw last week in Joshua 5 is that the commander of the army of heaven, Jesus Himself, is dressed for war. The pre-incarnate Christ showed up in Joshua 5, and He's already appeared on the scene, and He is battle-ready telling us that the fall of Jericho will be a direct action of God. And we know that for sure because specifically in verse 5, He tells us what He's going to do to intervene. The walls of the city are going to go flat, and Joshua can't possibly flatten the walls. He doesn't have any more ability to do that than you and I do. So it has to be an act of God. But at the same time, we learn from the author of Hebrews that this is an act of faith. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And throughout the Bible, you see this remarkable marriage of faith and action, the actions of God married together with the faith of humans. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum summed it up this way. I wanted you to see his quote. Faith takes hold of the promises of God and believes in their veracity, it takes hold of who God is and what He is about to do. This morning, church, this is true. That statement that I just made is true in your own life. It's true of your relationship with God and what God declares about you because of what He's done through Jesus. Follow me this way. You have been told that you are eternally forgiven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because of your belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you have been declared forgiven if you would believe in that. You know within yourself it's eternally true, but you have not yet received the outcome of your faith. Eternity is still in your future. 
You may have family and friends who have gone on before you who were believers. They have received the reality of that promise. You have not yet received the reality of the outcome of your faith. The exact same principle applies in Joshua chapter 6. God declares it. He says, this is real, but they still have to take hold of what God will do, even though it's completely unseen. They haven't seen it yet. Now, combine that knowledge with the facts of this reality of what's going on here. The information that God has given them, the instructions that He's contained within His details, it has no known connection to any previous military strategy. No one on earth in history had ever marched around a city and watched the walls collapse. And it never happened again afterwards. What's going on here? Well, it's ceremony. And I want you to understand the ceremony because it is part of a much, much bigger picture. Did you notice the prevalence of the number seven? I pointed it out to you in verse four, that four times in one verse, the number seven was repeated over and over again. You'll find that if you count up the number seven in the entire chapter, you'll find it's repeated 16 times in the entire chapter. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, so why should I care? Because of this, the number seven is a representation of totality in the Bible. In other words, it's the number of perfection. You especially find the number repeated constantly throughout the book of Revelation. So in this particular case, it's got a very good reason for occurring here. The predominance of it puts an exclamation point on the completeness of the victory that God is going to give them. It's already been given. He's declared it but it hasn't yet happened or been realized. So if you'll pardon the word, this military exercise, which is not military at all, is actually part of a spiritual exercise. The, the marching around the city that takes place is an outgrowth of something that God has declared to be holy. And I say that for this reason. I say that because Jericho is dedicated to God, and maybe not in the way that you think of dedicated. It's dedicated to destruction. The Hebrew word that's in your notes, and I'm not going to put it on the screen yet. We'll do that in just a few minutes when we come back to it. The word is harem. And when something is harem to God, it's dedicated or it's devoted to Him. I'll circle back around to it in verse 17 in just a little bit, but here's how you should understand it. Harem is something that is an irrevocable renunciation of any interest you might have in something in which you would turn it over with uncompromising consecration without any possibility of recall. I'll put it in real-world principles here. If you walked back to the offering box today at the end of the service and you decided that you are supporting the work of the church that's being done here and you put a gift in the offering box back there, you have given it over to God. You've declared that it's consecrated to God because it leaves your hands. It goes into God's work, and therefore it is irrevocable. It's something that God has said is harem. That's one way of understanding it. That, that's the principle that's being declared here. So thus the marching around the city and the blowing of the trumpets and the shouting that you're about to see it's essentially ceremonial because God has already given them the victory. He's claimed it. He's declared it as a possession of His, and the taking is yet to be realized. So it's all reinforced by God saying, the wall's going to collapse. 
The wall is going down. There'll be no effort on your part whatsoever. And I'm doing that. And the wall will actually have an implosion. Maybe when you've read this story before, you've thought about the walls of Jericho. How did they fall? Did they fall inward? Did they fall outward? No. Scripture indicates that they imploded upon themselves and crumbled and collapsed down. Look with me at the statement that's used here. It says in verse 5, the wall of the city will fall down flat. Well, the Hebrew word that's used there meaning beneath or under, meaning it actually imploded and just collapsed into like dust, but there's still stones there to this day. Archaeologists have uncovered them, telling us all of this put together, this battle is over before it ever starts. Because God had decided 400 years earlier, He's going to annihilate this fortress of sin. Do you remember back when God told Abraham, you're going to get a promised land? And it will be yours, Abraham, but you're going to have to wait a long time. It's going to be delayed because the sins of the Amorite is not yet complete. Let me take you back to the book of Genesis. Look with me at this at Genesis 15. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. He's talking about Egypt. And then verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here to the promised land. They will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Four hundred years God would wait for their sins to stack up. Do you think you struggle with patience in your life? Right? Four hundred years God's waiting for the sin of the Amorites to be complete, and Abraham's descendants will inherit the land, but it's part of God's much, much bigger purposes, one of which is punishing the Canaanites and the Amorites for their very egregious sin. We'll get into that in just a minute. So Yahweh Himself is going to personally take out the greatest defense that the warriors of Jericho have, and they're locked behind their very famous walls. And the very thing that they depend on to protect them is the same thing that God is going to turn to dust as their stronghold dissolves right before their eyes and they will be completely without defense. And say amen if you agree with this because our God does not mess around with sin. He doesn't. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't laugh at it. He does not find sin funny. It must be dealt with. Verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward, which is just the command literally to advance. I want you to go from Gilgal where you're at, go from the four or five miles and make your way over to Jericho. Literally, you're going to cross over, and that's the word that's advance that's used here. Verse 8. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came up after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. And there's three different types of trumpets that are mentioned in the book of Joshua. And every single one of them are made of animal horns. 
But the shofar specifically that's being referred to here, the shofar is a ram's horn. You see the definition of the word shofar here. It, it calls it out as a cornet, which makes you think of something metallic, but it's not. It's the type of horn which curls as it goes up. The shofar is referred to again in the book of Revelation as the horn that's blown when the angel of God descends. That's a battle horn. This is a signal horn. It signals a battle cry. And he's telling them, when you hear the battle cry, when you hear the ram's horn, that's a call to war. But that's the only sound that's going to be heard, verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So you get three very literal directives. Do not give a war cry. Do not talk to each other. And don't even whisper. Zero conversation. So can you imagine the psychological shock to the inhabitants of Jericho? Like, how creepy is that? 40,000 warriors minimum in all their battle armor walking around your city, which is spread out, we're told, by archaeologists over 10 acres, which means it's two-thirds of a mile in circumference, take 45 minutes to an hour depending on the group and how they mingle together as they move around this region. And you're watching this whole thing unfold. I can easily imagine that all the daily routines come to a, a halt. Everybody would cease what they're doing because everybody's waiting for the inevitable. They have no idea they have six more days of this to go. Verse 14, the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days, no sound other than the steady cadence of a soldier's boots marching in a rhythm and this blasting of these seven ram's horns, verse 15. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the word that's used there is the word ruah, which you see in your notes. And it's one of those unique Hebrew words that the pronunciation of it actually sounds like the action behind it. It's like ruah. The shout matches the tone of the actual word. You can't almost say it without shouting. That same behavior that they had done for six days, they repeated over and over again. The stage was set, then came the seventh day. We get this huge shout, and then while the seven priests are blowing the shofar, and they give one long sustained blast, in that same moment, every one of the tens of thousands of people cut loose with a huge ruah. And then you hit verse 17, and it makes you think, wait, I don't get it. How did this work? Well, it's not actually as though Joshua said, wait, time out. I forgot an instruction. Everybody just be quiet for a minute. No, this is actually in brackets because it obviously was instruction that was given beforehand, but it is a crucial detail to the entire story. Verse 17, the city shall be under a ban. 
Chalram, if you're following the word. And all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the band, Chalram, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. Verse 19, but all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So he's very, very clear. Everything except the rare earth metals are to be completely destroyed. Now this is the Bronze Age. And it doesn't mean because it's the Bronze Age that there's lots of bronze laying around. The Bronze Age is a period of time when they were able to perfect the art of working with bronze. But it was really hard to extract, so it was very hard to get your hands on bronze and iron, let alone gold and silver. And, and then you had to mine it and melt it down and, and try and shape it and smelt it and make it into something useful. That's the stuff that Joshua said is going to be set aside, and it's really, really difficult. So it's very precious. And he says, that's Horem. But everything else, the city and everything within it and all the people within it, they are devoted to the Lord. They are dedicated to the Lord. They are Horem. And this is where it messes with people. Because all the material things and everything that has the breath of life in it, Joshua says it's off limits. You can't take them for slaves. You can't harvest their jewels. You can't take their clothing. It is completely given over to God, if you will, as an offering of sorts. Now, just to be very, very clear so you understand this, when it comes to Jericho, the sin of the city that God is dealing with, your God has a scorched earth policy in regard to Jericho, meaning all the leather goods, all the woven products, all the spinning wheels, all the bowls, all the utensils, all the blankets, but especially the humans and the animals. But Joshua says, time out, with the exception of the precious metals which will likely be melted down and recast into something else. However, there's this one remarkable exclusion, a young woman and her extended family, and her name is Rahab, and this is the first time she surfaced again since chapter 2. And the crucial difference between Rahab and all the others, how is she different from them? She sins just like them. How is she different? Because of her identification with God. We saw three weeks ago, if you weren't here to catch that, back up on the website and catch it from three weeks ago, lots of detail about Rahab, but what we learned about her is she belongs to God in both her actions and in her words. But there's a problem when Rahab is reintroduced into the story. Here's the problem. Her exclusion ushers in this element of tension because she stands in stark contrast to all the other humans that are in the city. God wanted to make it very, very clear that 
He made a decision to annihilate the city, but He's given an exception to her. And it was actually mentioned through Moses all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. You probably don't remember that. Let me show it to you on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, in the city of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave any alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. Why? Verse 18, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done. Now, even though you and I are removed thousands of years from the time when this episode took place, even the most mature Christian in church still recoils when they think of children being put under the sword. And most would say, really? Even the young ones? And behind all of this is this principle of harem this verb which means to be devoted to the Lord or to devote to destruction. And now I do want to put the definition up for you so that you would see what's going on here in what's being stated. It's a dual definition, but it's got the exact same purpose. When you think of something that you have precious in your life, perhaps you have a safe at home or maybe you have a, a safety deposit box at the bank and you've put things in there that are secluded away. They're precious to you. You don't want anybody else to get the, their hands on them. You kind of get the idea of what's going on here, but this one amps it up by saying it's devoted to religious use, especially for the destruction of it. So it can be made accursed, either consecrated to God or utterly destroyed, and it's got both meanings going on behind it. So it's referring to something that is irrevocably given over to God. And that's why I mentioned your offerings earlier when you put money in the offering box. These are things that are belonging to God. The sacrificial system is a very good example of that in the Old Testament, which brings us all the way back around to Joshua chapter 6, verse 18. When Joshua warns them, you better keep away from the devoted things. These are things that are set aside for God's purposes. So specific items set apart for destruction. And he goes on to say, if you don't do this, our entire nation is going to come under the destruction of God. And you'll see that next week when we get together because Achan actually stole some of the things that belonged to God. And the entire nation came under God's wrath because when it comes to sin, our God does not mess around. He has to deal with it. Now, as the story comes to the end, there's no true battle here. There's no scaling ladders. There's no catapults. There's no vats of oil. There's no spears. There's no clash of shields on the field. There's not even arrows darkening the sky as the warriors approach. There's just this in verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Verse 21, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And like with so many biblical accounts, it gives just the briefest description, description of the battle, just minimal words. 
Seven days of this eerie silence, and then the thunder of tens of thousands of voices in unison calling out, and the wall falls down flat, and it collapses on itself. And archaeologists tell us today that the upper walls of Jericho and the lower walls of Jericho were formed out of chiseled block. Well, all that masonry block has to go someplace. Now, the Jewish rabbis are fun to read today because a lot of them look back on it and say, well, it's very possible that God opened up the earth and it all fell down inside a crevice in the earth. Okay, it's, it's okay to fantasize about things like that, but what archaeologists have revealed is actually when the walls tumbled, they fell flat down and then they went down the slope because Jericho is built on a slope and it actually created a ramp system for the warriors to go up into the city. So the walls that were built to keep people out actually became a ramp entrance right into the city. And, and the warriors enter the city completely unimpeded whatsoever and there, there's no siege warfare going on here to which most individuals, when they read an account like that, especially if they're not part of a church and they're not familiar with the Bible, they step back and say, I I'm repulsed by that. Many are repulsed by what they see as brutal barbarism when God demands the annihilation, the harem of an entire culture. And so you have individuals like what I'm going to show you from Mr. Getz, a quote that's coming up on the screen. He wrote this in 1975. He said, the book of Joshua is embarrassment enough with its ferocity and its religious advocacy of mass murder. And historians who look back on it and say, there's unjustifiable atrocities here. And I would step back and say, time out. You are failing to comprehend how utterly and Totally, God deals with sin. Now, we dare not skip over this last portion of this detail with Rahab. Evidently, her home in the city wall was spared somehow. It was preserved. We get this in verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Just a little detail for Bible nerds. They've taken them outside the camp because they're Gentiles and they're not yet ready for life within the camp of Israel. They've got to be prepared, in other words, to do life with God's people. But how fitting is it that the same two young men who met Rahab earlier are given the assignment to go rescue her. So check this church. A prostitute, a professional who's paid to be bad, a deviant, yet she came to believe in the one true God, so much so that she put her own life on the line. And God says that one, I want you to rescue her and her family because she's identified herself by her actions as actually belonging to me. And immediately after they do that, the entire city is put to the torch. Here it ends, verse 24. 
They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. So God comes to judge a culture. And he does it utterly, totally, and completely. But he spares a prostitute who is every bit equal to the worst sinner in the city. Her kind of lifestyle is the very thing that brought God's judgment. Yet she escapes. Why? Because she legitimately believed, and there in church is the essence of the gospel. All of us. Every one of us, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we are all equally worthy of God's judgment. Yet, because of the same amazing grace that Rahab experienced, you and I have experienced His amazing grace, and I know many of you believe, and so therefore you exercise true faith, and you're spared the wrath of God. See, I wanted to remind you of that beautiful component of this story because it stands in stark contrast to the ugly reality of how God must deal with sin. This indiscriminate slaughter causes humans to step back and find themselves thinking that we are more merciful than God. And that's a very dangerous place to be, thinking, I, I, wouldn't, I would never do that. Let's rationalize this. If he'd taken them out by disease or by famine, they would have been lost to history. We'd never be thinking or even talking about this. Maybe if he'd taken them out by an earthquake. But because he used his own people as executioners, humanity stands ready to accuse God of injustice, forgetting that this is actually a picture of how God treats sin. Their culture is actually characterized by the most heinous human behaviors known to man. The atrocities that they committed within their walls, the worship of their gods, small g, by burning babies and then burying babies alive, and I won't even get into all the details of how they behaved in deviant sexual behavior, all the things that they did, absolutely horrible. And historians who are biblical historians look back on it and say, that was not only an act of God's judgment, that was an act of God's mercy to remove the Canaanites. One historian said that, that this was actually a great gain to the welfare of humanity and society in general because by the standards of nearly every culture on planet Earth, the Canaanites and the Amorites' culture behavior was intensely heinous. It almost looks like the days of Noah if you study it, which could then cause us as humans today in 2023 looking at it and saying, oh, okay, well, I guess. Now I understand that explains it. I guess they did deserve it. Forgetting that from God's perspective, Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not quick to say amen to that verse, are we? Because it's a reality check for us. See, we all deserve the punishment and we all deserve the wrath. And to say otherwise is to live in complete denial. 
So the Canaanite culture is actually only receiving that which every human deserves. So in recognition of that truth, it's much more accurate to say that any people or any culture that has been preserved is only by God's grace and His stunning patience because He's incredibly patient with us. You might be looking at the United States culture and saying, what's up? Why is God being so patient? Well, because He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So that's your God. Church, you're going to go through Joshua 6 and arrive at the conclusion that the consequence of sin is a harsh reality. Just hear this as we walk towards communion now. Most people living in Jericho had no escape and they had very short window of warning. So similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. Young and old, living in comfort one day, living in prosperity. Next day, they're captured and absolutely destroyed. And what's stunning to me is even though they knew about God, they ignored Him. Because if Rahab a prostitute knew about the God of the Bible, they certainly did. They heard all the same stories. Everybody was in fear of what God had done. What's really difficult for me to understand is the resistance of the Canaanites when they've heard about God's victories, yet most of them rejected. But ask yourself this question. If they had repented like Rahab did, would not God have been merciful to them too? You see it with Jonah and Nineveh. You see it with the thief on the cross. God is merciful when people turn towards Him. So Joshua 6 reminds us that God punishes sin, all sin, just some He punishes faster than others, and anyone who thinks that God won't do that same thing to sinners is totally wrong. To think that God can sit with indifference and look upon evil on this planet and all its horror, but that He won't act is totally mistaken. God will act. He will just do it in His own timing. He's far more patient than we ever dreamed of. So if you're thinking things are a mess right now and that planet Earth is going to hell in a handbasket, God could easily kick the can down the road 500 more years. And that may be His mercy to do that. That may be His timing. Let me shoot straight with you, and not that I don't always do that, but I just want to sum it up this way. The biblical record is stark, it is graphic, yet it is completely unblinking when it comes to these kind of issues, which are horrible. And frankly, it should cause you to cringe when you consider the intensity of what unfolds when God punishes sin, which takes us all the way back to the image of Jesus on the cross. God ultimately had to deal with sin. So here's Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole earth, over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last because all the sin of the entire planet from Adam and Eve to the very last person who lives and breathes in the book of Revelation, all of that sin 
of this entire world was placed on Jesus. And I would add very quickly, willingly, because he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Ultimately, dealing with sin is seen seen in Jesus on the cross. And when God deals with sin and with evil, he does so absolutely and in total finality, utterly obliterating sin, which brings you to the cross, where God forever and finally dealt with sin. So if this morning, if you're struggling over what God, with what God did in Jericho, you have to be excessively more troubled with what happens on the cross and recognize in the same moment as God who delivers him over to be crucified. The one who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He deals with sin in Jesus. Jesus has taken on the sin of the world, and the Lord Jesus doesn't sort of kind of die. He absolutely is crushed for our iniquity. He is broken and utterly destroyed, and that's why he says, my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. If he wasn't completely destroyed at the cross, it would be incomplete. But it's not, church, praise God. And that's why Jesus said, it is finished, completely dealt with. Which takes me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're new to New Hope, we always read this chapter before we receive communion because it gives us very clear instructions about what we're about to do. Paul wrote this. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then verse 27 is this massive warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so at New Hope, we allow time for you to examine yourself. You wouldn't just rush to one of the tables. They're in the atrium and they're here in the front. And whenever you're ready, you come and pick up the elements. But we allow time for you to examine yourself. Am I where I should be or I have, do I have undealt with issues in my life? Take some time. Talk to the Father. Pray. When you're ready, pick up the elements. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is for you. Take this time right now.